Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. Joining me for this program is my good friend, Greg Kokel. Greg is the founder and president of Stand to Reason, and he also serves as an adjunct professor at Talbot School of Theology. And Greg is the author of Tactics, The Story of Reality, and Faith is Not Wishing. And Greg and I first met all the way back in 1990, which is way before he went on to become famous. <laughs> it's way before he went on to become a well-known apologist, speaker, and author. So, Greg, <laughs> when did you end up founding Stand to Reason? When? Uh, actually, May 1st will be our 30th anniversary. 30 years. So, like, 93 then? 93. Yeah. So, we are celebrating our 30th year this year, and it's really amazing, Shane. I imagine when uh, you guys started White Horse Inn, and I was there. That's right. You were there for our first for recording. For your very first broadcast at the KBRT studios there in Southern California. Because you worked at KBRT in those days, didn't you? I was broadcasting for them with commercial radio at the time. Uh, you guys showed up there, and I knew you from other reasons. And we I, we I, had some fun times there in a jacuzzi where you were learning Reformed Theology from Horton and all that fun stuff. That's right. That's one of my lines. Yeah. I name-dropped Mike Horton uh, because I learned Reformed theology in his jacuzzi. That's the, And uh, you might remember those days. I do. I remember uh, jacuzzi, cigars. We had it all working. The, the whole deal, <laughs> right. And so uh, then when, of course, you launched, I was there for that first broadcast. You guys were doing your thing in the studio. I was on the other side of the window watching your antics and uh, – that was quite a show, I mean, for a number of reasons, but we had a lot of fun then. And of course, over the years, being able to partner with you guys has been fabulous. Uh, we've just seen, you know, you take off writing really substantive quality books that have been well-received. So um, talk to our listeners a little bit about your book, Faith is Not Wishing. Like, what's that a book about? What's it rooted in? Okay, that is a, um, that's actually a compilation of pieces I wrote for Stand to Reason, and that was the title piece. There were other issues there, but we're actually re-releasing that particular one, Faith Great. is Not Wishing, that particular article this year, just because it's so foundational mm -hmm. to our whole approach at Stand to Reason, we're engaging skeptics and critics and encouraging Christians. As you know, Shane, apologetics actually as important or more important for the Christians 
than it is for the non-Christians because the Christian is the toughest uh, skeptic that he'll ever face themselves, yeah. right? If not today, then tomorrow, because you know yeah, you may not right. doubt anything today, but to, you know who knows Ex- about next exactly. year? Exactly. And doubt is such an ordinary part of Christian living. A lot of people don't realize that, and they beat up on themselves when they wonder whether what they believe is actually so. But it's still an ordinary part of life. And since Christianity is part of life, and humans live in the world, and doubt is going to be part of that. And part of the problem, and this is the reason I wrote that title piece for that anthology, to clarify a point or rectify a mistake that Christians make about the nature of faith, Mm -hmm. and they think that faith is a kind of spiritual wishful thinking. Faith is what you use when uh, you don't have any other resources that support your conviction. So you just got to, and this is what people say, you just have to take it on faith. You're not taking it on fact. You're not taking it on evidence. You're not taking it because of reasons. In that way of characterizing it, you have none of those things. You don't have fact. You don't have evidence. You don't have reasons. And this is where faith comes in. And what this does, Shane, and you know this, I know you've written about this and we've talked about this in the past, but this reduces Christian faith almost to a religious placebo. You know, it was Marx who said, religion is the opiate of the people. In other words, well, that's the drug you take to feel better. And if you have no external reasons to believe in the thing that right now is making you feel better, it's nothing more than a placebo. It doesn't have any medicinal quality. You know, placebo is that little sugar pill you the doctor gives you under the radar, so to speak. You don't know it's a sugar pill, but you think it's medicine that will cure your ailment, but you don't have an ailment, so he gives you a placebo. And then you think it's working and you feel better. And this is what Mark says religion does for people. Well, that's really what it amounts to, frankly, if the things that we believe are just kind of sitting on their own as a article of faith, and that's it. So, okay, we believe and we feel better, but how do we, what is our confidence that our beliefs match reality? And uh, of course, this is where Christian apologetics comes in. Well, to get the ball rolling for this conversation, I'd like to play some audio that I aired on an earlier episode featuring clips from Bill Maher, Richard Dawkins, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, along with some street interviews that I recorded last year at a variety of Christian events. Faith, the purposeful suspension of critical thinking. (laughs) Faith, to me, means belief in the absence of evidence. This is why religions are called faiths, because you believe something in the absence of evidence. That's what it is. That's why it's called faith. If there were evidence for it, why would you need to call it faith? You'd say just evidence. We only need to use the word faith when there isn't any evidence. Faith is a hope that we have something more, that this is not all there is to life, that we have a a purpose and a function with our existence. Is it a blind trust or is it a trust rooted in something? I don't know if I can even say. I think if there wasn't some semblance of blind trust to faith and it no longer becomes faith, it's simply evidence. It's proof. Faith is believing without seeing. So it's blind? It's blind. Okay. Yeah. So why did you make this blind faith leap here? Uh, That's a hard question. So why did you take this step into the Christian religion, not the Muslim leap? I kind of just trust. Trust my intuition, trust my gut. I think atheists have faith. You know, they have faith in what they believe. So why do you think Um, yours is the right faith compared to all the other options? Because I have faith. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's 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 such a funny thing because it's like it's not like a, a definite answer like faith is you're grabbing air i know that i'm grabbing air so greg last fall i ended up interviewing about 100 christians at a variety mm-hmm. of different christian events and the overwhelming majority of the answers i received were basically like the ones you just heard so why do mm-hmm. you think it is that so many christians in our day essentially have the same view of faith as a new atheist like richard dawkins yeah, it's interesting because you led in with saying there's going to be these atheists and then Christians, etc. And frankly, I, it was hard for me to tell the difference. Is that the atheist or the Christian talking? Because frequently you get these kinds of statements from Christians who, in a sense, ought to know better. But uh, this is a problem we face, and you're aware of this, is that the understanding that Christians have of Christianity is really shallow because you cannot read in the Gospels or in the book of Acts with any focus and not realize that all of these statements with regards to the biblical perspective are false. It's interesting that whoever, and this might have been Dawkins, the second one, it says, faith to me is belief in the absence of evidence. Well, okay, fine. Virtually every public atheist now uses this characterization Mm -hmm. of faith. And frankly, when they are talking about faith, Well, they can use whatever definition they want when they are talking about what they mean by faith. But if they're going to deal with Christianity itself, then you have to critique that view or else you're guilty of a straw man, all right? And as these statements reflect Christianity, even when made by Christians, it's a straw man because this is not what Christianity teaches, okay? Um, The New Testament, especially the historical material, because these are evidences of people giving testimony regarding Christianity and why people should take their claims about Christ, etc., seriously, they're thick with reasons and evidences and rationales. In fact, the summary at the beginning of the book of Acts is that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, appeared to his disciples with many convincing proofs. And of course, that's just a summary statement. We have the details of that throughout the Gospels, the where Jesus, look at John chapter 5. Jesus says, okay, I know you don't want to believe me because I'm my own witness. All right? Okay, so what about John the Baptist? He bears witness to me. There's another one. Uh, What about the scriptures? They bear witness to me. What about the works that I do? Believe because of those things. There are multiple witnesses. Notice that even Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, outwardly and (laughs) self-confessedly invited people to put their confidence in him based on the evidences that were there before him. No blind leap of faith. And if somebody wants, and we can talk more about the verses, but if somebody wants a great summary of this particular point, the best one I can think of is at the end of the Gospel of John, Mm. where John says, here's why I wrote the most famous gospel in the world. Of course, it wasn't famous at that time, but we know this. The Bible is the best-selling book, and the Gospel of John is the best-selling portion of the Bible and the most well-known. And it's the highest characterization of the person and the work of Christ. So what does he say was his reason for writing? And this is at the end of chapter 20, which, by the way, comes right after the Doubting Thomas segment. Next verse, which means when Jesus says, you know, blessed are those who believe who haven't seen, He can't be meaning blind faith, all right, because of what comes next. And here's what John says there. Uh, Many other signs and wonders Jesus performed 
that have not been included in this account. He says later that Jesus did so many things that had filled all the books of the world. These have been included so that you would believe. And what, what was the content of the belief? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the Son of God. So you've got the person and work of Christ there kind of worked in. What's the consequence? And in believing, you would have everlasting life. So you get this magnificent statement that flies in the face of not only all of those atheists in their characterization of faith, at least with regards to Christianity, but in the face of all of those unfortunately ill-informed Christians who make the same kinds of statements. The scripture calls for faith, but it never acts like faith, which is an act of active trust, is something that is a blind thing or some kind of leap, or it is unrelated to the evidence. That is a grotesque, actually, mischaracterization of the biblical use of the term. Yeah, and, and even if we were to uh, just focus on that Thomas scene, I mean, Thomas certainly didn't have blind faith. He had Jesus standing right in front of him, and he ended That's up believing right. on the basis of that. So if you say, Faith is blind. I've actually had people tell me that faith is a kind of extrasensory perception. It's mm -hmm. it's something spiritual inside of you, deep in your heart. You just know something you feel. And that doesn't explain what Thomas himself said or what John says in his epistle, that which we've seen with our eyes, which we have heard, which we have touched and handled. This we proclaim to you. Right. I use that passage actually in the, the new book coming out in September called Street Smarts. Uh, maybe we can talk around then again, uh, Shane, about that work. But uh you look in the first part of 1 John, so there's an epistle, and there John is talking about, look at all the senses that are involved, mm -hmm. what we saw, what we heard, what we touched. And it's seen with the eyes, not in a vision. Exactly. So you have all these, these powerful characterizations of the evidence that is meant to substantiate and support what the Bible then calls faith. Now, a quick retread on, uh, on Thomas. Now, a lot of people haven't really they they mistake this. When they hear Jesus say, blessed are those who believe, who haven't seen, they read the word seen and sight as evidence and reasons exactly. and facts and rationale. So we're not supposed to have any of that. But that isn't what he says. He says, blessed are those who have believed and haven't seen. And that was exactly what Thomas was asking. Now think about Thomas. He just spent three and a half years with Jesus in ministry with him basically daily, watching Jesus walk on water, calm the storm, heal the sick, cast out demons, even raise the dead. He's seen all of this stuff, right? And then when Jesus is crucified, he meets with his buddies, and 10 of his buddies who are part of that apostolic band said, we have seen Jesus. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can stick my finger in the wound, you know, and do that kind of number. And so Jesus shows up and said, all right, Tom, have at it. Now, he's embarrassed, obviously, but this is a chastisement by Jesus. You don't need to see with your eyes when you had all these other reasons to invest a proper trust in me, including the direct testimony of all your buddies who did see with the eyes. Exactly. So that's what's being said there. And then Paul makes a comment in, I think, Second Corinthians that's similar. We walk by faith and not by sight. He's saying to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So when you're present with the Lord, then you see. 
you know? Right. But when we're absent with the body, we don't see him. It doesn't mean we have no reason to believe everything that we're doing is true, but we're not seeing him. Now we're not walking by seeing, we're walking by the trust we have in him based on other things that we know different than actually seeing. And so there's a misunderstanding of those passages all the time. Yeah. A few years ago, I read a book called um, Proof of the Gospel by Eusebius of Caesarea. And in that book, you know, written by this fourth century uh, bishop, he says, because of the extraordinary foreknowledge shown in the prophetic writers and of the actual events that occurred in agreement with their prophecies, Jews and Gentiles both should be convinced of the inspired and certain nature of the truth we hold. And then he mm. goes on to say, this should silence the tongues of false accusers who slander us Christians by saying that we think it enough to retain those who come to us by faith alone, as if we only teach our followers like irrational animals to shut their eyes and staunchly obey what we say without examination. Wow. So Eusebius is basically saying there that this was a kind of a caricature of the Christians right. of his day, but today it's really no longer a caricature, is it? No, it isn't. In fact, I'd never heard that citation before, and uh, I, I was amazed because it is so timely. Mm -hmm. it, it speaks directly to the circumstances we're facing now, but it shows that, you know, what we're facing now is not new. People did the same thing then mm -hmm. with the concept of, of faith as they do now. And for some reason, I, I don't entirely understand this in terms of church history and modern church history and Certainly, there's been a move towards the subjective, you know, yeah. you ask me how we know he he lives, he lives within my heart. It's one thing for us to be convinced ourselves based on something subjective. Uh, it's another thing for us to convince others based on that thing that's subjective. And another thing for us to be able to count on that subjective feeling when circumstances really get tough. And I'll just say quite candidly, I've had times in my life when I've thought, OMG, am I really right about this? Right. I'm staking a lot on it. you know. And I'd hear some argument or something or some line of thinking or some challenge. And I'd and I think, well, I don't know how to answer that. Then that cold chill goes up my spine. And I know a lot of our listeners have, have experienced that. And it's the time when the, that subjective element is not present to us that something else steps in for me. And this is what I do is I just review my reasons for belief in God, for belief that Jesus rose from the dead, the historical evidence for the life of Christ in general. By the way, this is not based on my confidence that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, not how I approach it. The early Christians had no inspired word of God, New Testament. What they had is a testimony of Jesus of Nazareth crucified and risen, and uh, from the testimony of people who were in a position to know whether that was actually the case. Yeah, that's the way Luke opens his gospel. He says, you know, I, I'm going to give you certainty about these things, Theophilus, right. not because what I'm writing is the word of God, but because I've collected the evidence from the eyewitnesses. Exactly, exactly. And so um, so I review those kinds of things, and then I realize I'm in, yeah, I'm in a good spot here. I, I got better reasons to believe or to uh, have confidence that my beliefs are so, that they're true, then I have to think that they're not. And there's always alternatives here. What's the alternative is a question I often ask. If my views are not correct, then some other view of reality is. So what are the options? And certainly, when I, for example, atheism. Atheism requires me to, to affirm so many things that are utterly counterintuitive that I simply cannot bring myself to believe in it. Yeah. That the world, everything came from nothing. That consciousness came from matter. That, uh, that life came from non-life. 
You know, these are all parts of natural history that are features of the real world that require explanations. And it turns out atheism makes not only no sense of those things, but it seems to be precluded by the reality of the origin of the universe, the design in the universe, the origin of life, the origin of consciousness, all of those kinds of things. So when I'm able to review the things I know, then uh, I can get back to sleep in the middle of the night, which is why apologetics is so important for Christians, because it will help them deal with the toughest critic they will ever face which is themselves. You know, it sort of matches to me, you know, what we find in Deuteronomy when, you know, it comes to discerning whether or not a particular person who's claiming to be a prophet mm-hmm. really is a prophet. The, the people of Israel were never told, well, what do you feel in your spirit? Kind of like the Book of Mormon's claim, like, you know, will you have a burning in the bosom? What, what they were told is the true prophet, if he says the things that actually come to pass— then he is the one sent by God. In other words, you're evaluating, you're trying to discern whether or not there's a correspondence between the words of this right. man and the actual real world reality. Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. write in your book, the story of reality, mm-hmm. it's got to correspond to reality for it to be true. Right. You know, it's interesting about the uh, warnings there in Deuteronomy. There's a couple of them there. and You just cited Deuteronomy 18. And what it says there, it actually gives false prophecy as a positive test for a false prophet. Mm-hmm. But it's not a positive test for a true prophet. And the reason is, if you go back a couple of chapters, like 13 or 14, there's another passage that says, if you have a prophet that says he's going to do a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true, and he encourages you to follow other gods, you disregard them. Do not listen to him. So there is that just acknowledges that there is a spiritual realm out there where there can be works and acts of power that are inconsistent with God's truth as well. So there we have an interesting kind of combination because we've been talking about how supernatural powers can be signs, supernatural acts, um, like we see in the New Testament. Yet at the same time, we know we can be so reminded, look, there's also phonies. So we have to make sure that the word that God has given us about what the world is actually like and what he wants of the world, that is affirmed by those who say, here's a sign and wonder. Yeah. And of course, we see kind of crazy things that are happening today. And some people think as long as it's a crazy thing that looks supernatural, they must be right. from God. Of course, now we know that isn't the case. And we've been warned in advance, 3,000 years in advance, actually more than that, 3,500 yeah, right. years in advance when you go back to Moses. Yeah, it's got to be consistent with that which God revealed to Moses. And in fact, there's a line there, and I think it's Deuteronomy where it's in the middle of the you know amazing signs and wonders there where people right. are hearing God's voice directly. And God says to yes, Moses, right. when they hear my voice speaking to you, they will believe you forever. In other words, mm-hmm. this is the ground of the canon. Moses will be trusted because this entire generation was here at Mount Sinai. They mm-hmm. saw it with their eyes. They heard it with their ears. Again, this is the same kind of language you find mm-hmm. in the New Testament, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the powerful working that we see in the Exodus, the 10 signs yeah, there. Yeah, walking through water. Yeah. Why is that there? You know, It's interesting. 10 plagues and 10 times from chapter 3 to chapter 14 of Exodus, you see these words, so that they shall know yep. that there's a God in Israel. So once again, the evidence from the text is clear that faith frequently follows the acts 
of power that is the evidence that the thing the person has, is having faith in is actually true. And that's the same kind of thing you find in the New Testament as well. Just like the man who is a paralytic is lowered, Jesus says, so that you may know yeah, that I have right. the power that only God has. I say, to get up and walk. Sins. Right. Yeah. That's Mark chapter two, a great example. And then in uh, Acts chapter two, you have Pentecost Sunday. It's interesting because there in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit descends to inaugurate the new covenant period. Of course, all the disciples in the upper room pour out into the public and there there's noise and there's tongues of fire and they're prophesying, make, make it such a ruckus. People think they're drunk. And Peter speaks for them and he says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. We it's haven't only nine started. in the morning. <laughs> We, we, that's right. We don't, you stole my line. We don't start drinking till noon. That's, this is the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, he didn't say drinking till noon, but the point is it's too early to drink. Okay. What you see and hear, notice is appeal to the senses as the work of the Holy Spirit, which by the way, was prophesied by Joel. So now he's going back to prophetic word. And why is this all happening? Because there's a guy that you killed that you put in the grave and he came out of the grave. He's risen and we are witnesses to it. And by the way, that was also prophesied by David. So you notice time and time again, even in that very first sermon in the book of Acts, the Pentecost sermon by Peter, you have the display of evidences that are given uh, to in, enjoin those to trust in the truth of those things. And so you, here are all these people that heard this testimony and were so compelled by what they heard, they were believers. Yep. And then in light of their believing, they were baptized by the thousands. There you go, right out of the book of Acts. Yeah, it starts with the 3,000 there. It turns into 5,000 not long after that. Then you find the word myriads, which is a word for tens of thousands. And all this matches what you find Tacitus saying in the 60s, that there were an innumerable multitude of those who were captured and persecuted for their faith. And that's Mm -hmm. in Rome only. And those are only the ones captured. So it seems to to match. What the Christians are saying is matching with what secular sources are saying, and that's got to be explained. Yeah, that's right. You know, and just uh, to underscore this, Paul says something very interesting in 1 Corinthians 15. He's got a whole section there about resurrection. And and what he says, and I like the way he puts it, because essentially, this is a little bit of a paraphrase, but it's almost the exact words. He says, if Christians are believing in a resurrection, like the resurrection in Christ, which secures their future resurrection, contrary to fact, people ought to feel sorry for us. His words there in my translation is, we are of all people most to be pitied. Mm-hmm. So once again, there is that same theme being championed in Scripture, this from the pen of Paul, that uh, that we are talking about the truths of reality for which there is good evidence. And if, in fact, we're believing falsely by some kind of leap of faith, boy, we're a sorry lot. Yeah, what we're saying is this is true whether we believe it or not. And if it's mm-hmm. not true, no one should believe it. Yeah, so far, we actually haven't made a case for the truth of Christianity based on the evidence, what we've made a case for is what Christianity holds to be the case regarding what faith is. And we're using the Christian testimony, which is the source of authority for Christian understanding. If you want to critique Christianity, you've got to go to the real McCoy. And we're saying the characterizations of faith that you read and we heard on the recording towards the beginning of this broadcast are not biblical characterizations. And so they are straw men, they are misrepresentations, they have refuted a view that we don't hold, okay? So now, of course, if we are characterizing faith as a conviction or a trust, which is what the word pistis in the Greek 
means that translated faith oftentimes, if it's a trust based on evidence, well, now we're in a position to offer the kind of evidence for the resurrection or the authority of Scripture or the existence of God or a whole host of things to demonstrate that the theological claims that are made in the text that enjoins us to trust for reasons, now we can make the case with reasons that those theological claims are sound. I've heard you say on various occasions that uh, because the English word faith has evolved to mean something entirely different than it used to convey, Christians should probably stop using this word. Yes, I have said that. And uh, and because it's like, what if I said nowadays, I said, you know, that Fred is gay. What would you think? Well, you think he's a homosexual. Not He's not a whole, I'm not saying he's a homosexual. He's the happiest guy I know. Yeah. Okay. Now what has happened? There's a word that meant something at one period of our history, a hundred years ago. Okay. And now it has a completely new meaning. In fact, when people think of this word now, it doesn't occur to them that we're talking about their emotional temperament, right. but rather their sexual preference. Okay. And so we would never use the word gay to describe somebody's emotional temperament. It doesn't apply. It doesn't mean that anymore. Okay. So what do you use instead of faith? Okay. Well, I just characterized the Greek word as active trust. And so when I talk to people, I don't ask them to have faith in anything. I want them to trust Jesus and for reasons. And trusting Jesus looks a certain way. It means they're trusting him for something he can give them that they can't get themselves, and that is relief from God's judgment against them for their crimes against him, from their rebellion against him, and that he took that for them. And when they put that confidence in him, then following him is the natural recourse, because it's not just kind of going to the store and getting a freebie. Oh, this is a freebie, salvation. No, it's a whole change of life. That's the whole notion of repentance. So that's the way I characterize it. And notice that even as I was explaining it further, I was avoiding all kinds of Christian psychobabble that I think just confuses things. So I encourage people, don't say faith anymore. That's not even, it's not, that word isn't in the Bible. The Bible's not written in English, right? In the New Testament in Greek. That's an English word that we use to translate, but we always, in translation, try to use the word that captures the sense of it right. in the original. And that English word no longer does that because people have this tendency, as you pointed out, to uh, add the words blind or leap of to it. And they can't get away from that. It's so reflexive. Forget about that word. Yeah. And the same thing with belief. I even to say the word belief. Uh, because it, it somewhat has that, that's mere belief is what people think. That isn't a belief that something is true based on good reasons. So all of these atheists that we cited have all kinds of beliefs. They think all kinds of things are true, all right? There's nothing wrong with belief. But when applied to religious convictions, uh, it just sounds different. That's why I call it, talk about religious convictions instead of religious beliefs. Mm. And I have these convictions for these reasons, okay? And by the way, the reasons aren't enough. And it's not even enough. And I think sometimes this needs to be said so that non-Christians or people that are tire kickers listening to your program don't misunderstand. We are not simply saying um, there are reasons for certain facts. And so if you acknowledge that the reasons support the facts, now you affirm the facts, okay? Because that's not enough. We're not looking for an intellectual ascent here. And I think the best illustration for me is uh, I just flew in from Philly a couple of days ago. Before I got on the plane, I was fully convinced for lots of reasons, experience and facts, 
regarding aeronautics and pilots and everything, that this plane was capable of taking me back to LAX, all right? But I did not exercise the kind of faith the Bible is talking about, active trust, until I got on that plane. Yeah. So there was an investment of me personally. I was all in, so to speak. I'm there, okay? Now I'm in the hands of the mechanics and the engineers and the pilot, especially, to do for me what I am trusting them to do. Yeah, the plane wouldn't get you there on its own unless you had faith, because the faith is what gets you in the seat. That's right. Yeah. And, it, and it also has to have a pilot that can do the job. And right. This is they both why have to work together. The facts about Jesus, which would be the analog to the pilot here, the facts about Jesus are so critical. Those things about Jesus have to be true in order for him to accomplish uh, what we are trusting him to do for us. That's why faith doesn't save. Right. It's Jesus who does the saving and faith in that, you know, the means by which we uh, enter into that relationship where Jesus can rescue us. Yeah, I like the way you put that because it sort of shocks people because it goes against sort of the the slogans that you hear. Faith doesn't save. Faith links you to the object who saves. We're saved by That's trusting right. in the right object, the one who act, is right. the right deliverer and savior. That's right. Well, so uh, one more question for you. Uh, how do yep. you typically respond to Christians who put such an emphasis on God's irresistible grace that they begin to think that the use of evidence and reasoning with people is basically a waste of time? You know, faith is a gift after all, and you can't reason a person into the kingdom. Yeah, that's the Reformed crowd, which I, I'm part of, you know, but to me, this is very simple to answer. I try to do, oh, let me back up. Okay. So my convictions about God's grace is that it's sovereign. So I believe it's sovereign grace yep. in the Reformed sense. And if that's true, then all the writers in the New Testament believed the same thing. And so did Jesus. They all believed what I believe in that regard. All right. But what did they do in light of that belief? They preached and they gave evidences and they beckoned people to respond in some sense. Reasoning and persuading them in the synagogues. Exactly. There are no altar calls, no invitations to pray to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. But there's this appeal. Jesus said, follow me you know, or um, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. So there are these appeals that are given. And th there can't be an inconsistency there between those kinds of appeals and the use of evidences, etc., and the sovereign work of God in salvation. Because Jesus believed in the sovereign work of God regarding salvation, John 6, John 10, but still said in John 5, believe for this reason. If you don't believe because of the works, believe because of Abraham or because of the scriptures, because of Moses, or uh, he didn't say Abraham, he said John the Baptist. But he's making these broad appeals, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast. So it can't be inconsistent. If we do what Jesus did in the way we engage and seek to persuade, or what Paul did, reason with them from the scriptures, in that case, he was talking with Jews, so he's reasoning from the scriptures, and some were persuaded. Or when he's on Mars Hill, he's not quoting the Bible, he's quoting Epicurean philosophers, but he does mention having provided proof by raising this man from the dead, at which they scoffed, many of them, but some believed. So, so if we just follow the pattern of Jesus and the disciples, we're in good shape. You know, We don't have to overthink this. Let's just do what they did and, uh, and then trust God to do what is his responsibility to do, and that is to use the means that are biblical means to accomplish the end that he wants to accomplish. Well put. 
Uh, before we go, Greg, tell our listeners about this new book that's coming out in September. Yeah, September 12th is the release date. Actually, I think you can already on Amazon pre-order it. What's the title um, again? It's called Street Smarts. And the subtitle is Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. Mm. Now, those who are familiar with the tactics book, and of course, we've talked about this lots over the years. Um, this is a book that is a, a guide that will help you maneuver in conversations, especially by using questions in very particular ways. So this book is kind of a sequel. So if you like gotcha. the tactics book, um, this is the next step. And th what I do in this book is I examine a number of different areas. So atheism, the problem of evil, the person of Jesus and his claims, the Bible and a lot of weird stuff that's in the Bible, you know, admittedly, you know, this is a strange book in many ways, um, science and and uh, and religion and the relationship there and uh, sex and gender and marriage. So all of these things, I'm uh, abortion, I'm addressing all of these issues that Christians uh, st stand up for, but they don't exactly know how to do it because they don't know what's wrong with the issues. So in this book, I I explain, here's the problem, some problems with atheism, and for example, and then I say, okay, how do you exploit those problems? You use questions. So I write dialogues with initial questions that mm. the Christian can use to gather more information from the atheist who's offering the challenge, and then to exploit the weakness or the, 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 the flaw in the atheist's thinking with more questions. And so the dialogues are meant to, you know, some things can be taught and other things have to be caught. Right. And so the dialogues are a way of helping them get out of the gate, so to speak, with initial questions and then catch how I respond, you know, ramp into these conversations with these model dialogues. And so uh, using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. I recently had a series of conversations with a, uh, a very strident skeptic. It sounded like he had uh, not really worked through the substantive books on these issues, but maybe some atheist right. blogs kind of thing. But he was just- With his was, characteristic of most yeah. skeptics, And frankly. so, but it was like a fire hose, you know, just all these questions just Challenges, kind of yeah. spurting out. And, you know, one of the things that's difficult was you're trying to process, like I have now, I think, 60, 80, 100 questions to answer. And instead yeah. of doing that tit for tat back and forth, ding, it comes, you know, back into my mind. Okay, I should probably stop. Reset and then follow the tactics approach where you go, I ask yeah. him a simple question. <laughs> right, right. So I, I, there's a tactic in the tactics book called steamroller, and this is it teaches how to deal with a steamroller. Mm -hmm. It's a defensive tactic, but sometimes people just have to un unload. Okay, you listen to them and listen to them, and then when they take a breath and they feel yeah. a little bit better about all the stuff, then you say, "Well, I can't answer everything right now, but tell me what is." Give me an example of one of the most pressing issues for you now that maybe we can talk about. So now you're just asking for one thing. Now, they, when they bring that out, my suspicion is that that one thing that's really pressing on them is not going to be a sound criticism. And I probably have some ideas about how to show that to be the case using questions, even with that particular challenge, which is what this Street Smarts book is all about. Right. And so then I'm going to start asking these questions. And I'll tell you, Shane... And people who have used the tactics material and follow the game plan have seen this themselves. People come into a conversation, a skeptic, a challenger, with their sails filled, right? With objections, with challenge, with mm -hmm. energy, with attitude, with their ego, all of that. And I find out if I just begin to ask them a couple of questions that are appropriate to the circumstance, okay, 
all of a sudden the wind goes out of their sails, you know, Uh, they don't know how to answer. And the reason they don't know how to answer is they really haven't thought about the issue itself at all. They have just added a lot of bluster and things they've heard other people say. Now, there are exceptions to this, but I'm just saying characteristically. And so I'm trying to get them to think about their views in in an appropriate way. And that's why I've organized the dialogues I have with the questions that I use in the Street Smarts book. Folks, be sure to join me again next time as I tackle the subject of doubt in the Christian life with the help once again of Greg Kokel as well as Elisa Childers. For more information about this podcast, be sure to head to humbleskeptic.com. And for additional resources related to my conversation with Greg Kokel, check out the show notes where I'll include links to recommended books and articles, along with an interview that I recorded with Greg about his book, Tactics. Please remember that The Humble Skeptic is listener-supported, and if you're profiting from this program, then consider upgrading to a paid subscription or putting something in the tip jar. Also, consider writing a positive review of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. We'll be right back.